How many commandments are there? Hey, I am proud of you. <laughs> I was going to trick you with that one. You can trick your friends, can't you? You can say how many, and you know what they're most, most of them are going to say immediately? Ten. And you say, no, Jesus gave a new commandment that we love one another as he has loved us. And that's true. He did give a new command, commandment. I even found in my bookshelf last week, it was funny because I had forgotten I had this book by Dr. Lehman Strauss. It's entitled The Eleven Commandments. And the eleventh one is this one in John 13. All right, um, open up your Bibles, please. This morning, we're going to be all over the place, but let's start out in John chapter 13, where we left off. John chapter 13. I don't know if I mentioned this to you last time, but do you, did I tell you that the officially the Olivet, not the Olivet Discourse, the uh, Upper Room Discourse begins in John 13, 31, after Judas left. That's the official beginning of the Upper Room Discourse. We're going to be in the Upper Room Discourse for a long, long time because it consists of John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then 17 is his high priestly prayer. But some people include that in the discourse, so you know we're going to be hanging out here for a long time. But officially, it did not begin until Judas left the upper room. And that, of course, is when Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. All right, I didn't know if I had shared that with you before, but now I know that I did. So let's begin with asking the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning, and then we'll just jump right into our lesson, okay? Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for this day that we have again the wonderful privilege and opportunity to assemble together and uh, open up your word. May we never, ever take for granted the, the blessed privilege we have to have our own individual copies of your love letter to us, the, the one book you ever wrote to reveal yourself to us, and we thank you for that privilege. Not everybody in the world has that privilege. Lord, thank you for the word. Thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. May we ever be true to it, that we would dissect it and, and consider every single word that you have spoken to us, because none of it is by accident, and all of it is divinely inspired for, for our edification and our um, a conviction and our growth into Christ-likeness. And now today, as we open up your word and look at what you had to say to your men and through them to us, may we again glean what the Holy Spirit has for each of us. I know it's amazing how some of us take home one thing and others take home another, but only your Holy Spirit can do that because he knows what's going on in every life and every heart here. So we would just pray that he would be our teacher this morning activating the, the word of God and speaking to us. And, and may we be careful to learn from the mistakes of others, especially this morning, to learn from the mistakes of Peter and the other apostles. And we will be sure to give you the credit and the glory for whatever is accomplished here this morning, for we do pray Jesus in your blessed name. Amen. Well, this current lesson which does continue our look at the events of the Lord's final night with his men, begins with the question from none other, there was a hint in my prayer, from none under, other than who do you think? Which, which apostle? Simon Peter, exactly. Simon Peter in John thirteen thirty six is where we will be beginning. Now Peter, we find, was again troubled about something that the Lord had just said. 
and it did not have to do with his perplexity over who among them could possibly betray the Lord, which Jesus had just revealed to them, remember, in verse 21. Peter was not this time perplexed about who could be the betrayer, nor did Peter's question have to do with the mysterious secret mission that Jesus had told Judas to go out and do quickly, which uh, was stated in verse 27, and they all heard him say that. You know, you might think Peter would say, well, what is he going to do, Lord? What did you send him out to do? Neither was Peter's perplexity about the Lord's words regarding his glorification and God's glorification in him, which he had revealed where? In verses 31 and 32, where Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Now you think that Peter would be perplexed about that. And I'm sure he was, and I'm sure the other apostles were perplexed about that. But then, after all, they were very used to Jesus speaking strange words about celestial concepts that they couldn't quite grasp. So he didn't ask about that. And we can be sure that Peter was not meditating on the new commandment that Jesus had just spoken about. fact of the matter is, I sincerely think that Peter didn't even really hear you know, with spiritual ears, the Lord's words of verses 34 and 35 regarding the new commandment of love being the mark of true discipleship. And you know why I don't think he really even heard those words? Because Peter got stuck in verse 33. He got all hung up in verse 33 where the Lord had said, As I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. You see, Peter got distracted from hearing the greatest commandment that Jesus had ever given to his followers. He got distracted by the fact that Jesus spoke of his departure. Jesus' departure from them was the concept that deeply, deeply disturbed Peter and the others as well. But we can always count on Peter to be the one that's going to speak up about whatever is bothering him. He's always the one who will speak his mind on a matter. And he did. Now, Peter's question, and actually there's two questions we're going to be looking at from Peter in this uh, lesson this morning. Peter's questions um, and the Lord's response to him, which is then followed by four very specific predictions about events that are going to occur before the next day, four events that are going to happen before the next day. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this lesson, which is entitled Passover Predictions, because of the fact that he now gives them four predictions. This is a lesson, as I said earlier, that is going to take us into all four gospel accounts. It would be very confusing for you if you just read John and tried to get an understanding of what went on that, you know, in the upper room um, that night with this conversation, or if you just read Matthew, you'd be very confused. So that's why we have harmonies of the gospel that help us out, and they help us out to find out how that conversation went. It starts in John 13, and if it wasn't for John, we wouldn't know that Peter at this point interrupted the Lord's discourse with his two questions. We wouldn't know it unless it was for John. 
but then we're going to have to move over to Matthew. We'll be in Luke. I mean, we're going to be jumping through all four Gospels this morning so that we get the chronology. Now, chronologically speaking, what happens here takes place while the disciples and the Lord are still probably eating their Passover supper. They're still reclining at the Passover table, and they may be, as they're talking, you know, maybe still eating. It happens during the Passover supper, but after Judas has left the room and before the Lord transitions the Passover supper into what? The Lord's Supper, which we are going to begin to look at, Lord willing, next week. We'll be discussing the institution, the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper, seeing it in light of the Passover Supper, which is absolutely very fascinating. So for several weeks, we'll be in the Lord's Supper following this lesson this morning. So that's the sequence. Now, our outline, you can look down at your notes to see the outline. Um, consists just of two parts. We're going to be looking at those predictions regarding the disciples' deeds. What were some of their deeds that were predicted? Well, number one... He's going to predict his, his separation from them, the Savior's separation. That's our first predi uh, prediction coming from the lips of Jesus. And then he's going to predict Satan's sifting. Now, who will that be about? Peter, because Satan desired to sift Peter like wheat. Third prediction we'll be looking at is the Lord's prediction of when the shepherd is smitten, the sheep will scatter. So we're going to be looking at the prediction of the sheep scattering, and that'll be over in Matthew and then the prediction of Simon's shame. That's when Jesus tells Peter, before the cock crow twice, you're going to deny me thrice. And I said somebody could make a nice poem out of that, right? No, I could. Well, I don't have time anymore for poetry. <laughs> I haven't written a poem in years. So that's where we're going. The second part of our outline is one prediction regarding the disciples' needs. But I can tell you right now, I won't get to that. I didn't get to it yesterday. I didn't even get close to getting to it yesterday, so I know I won't be able to talk to you about it, but it is in your notes, so make sure you read your notes. There is going to be a lot in your notes that I don't have time to talk about today, so please always read your notes. I try to give you a little bit different stuff up here than what is in your notes, but if you listen to me and then read your notes, you'll get an even bigger picture of everything, okay? So read your notes every week. It only takes 15 minutes to read through them or an hour, depending on... It takes Terry several hours. <laughs> no, I'm All right, let's begin by looking at the Lord's prediction of the Savior's separation for this. John 13, verses 36 and 37. All right, this is after the Lord started the upper room discourse, talked about being glorified, said, little children, a little while I'm going to be with you. Where I'm going, you cannot come now. Uh, now I say to you a new commandment. You must love one another. And then... Peter says in verse 36, asks his first question, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? You see where he went? He went right back to 33. Just went right back to 33 when the Lord said, Whither I go, you can't come. Whither I, and Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. Can't follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, here's his second question, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. So what are Peter's two questions? Lord, where are you going? And Lord, why can't I follow you there right now? 
Those are his two questions. Well, when Simon Peter, back in verse 33, heard Jesus say, Whither I go, you cannot come, he just couldn't believe his ears. He couldn't believe it. How in the world could the master call them by that tender, affectionate little term that they had never heard him use before when Judas was in their presence? Little children, which in Greek is technia. It's a very affectionate term like you would use for your little precious children. How could he call them that in one breath and then in the next breath say that that he was going to leave them and as he said to the Jews where he was going, they couldn't come? How could he call them his little children and then tell them something that he had said to those who wanted to kill him, those who hated him? You know, he did say that. He said, as I said unto the Jews, how could that be? And as I mentioned earlier, Peter was so distraught over the thought of being separated from Jesus that it seems he barely heard the Lord's commandment about loving one another as he had loved them. In fact, as soon as the Lord's words about that new commandment were out of his mouth and the Lord took a little breath, you know, that's when Peter stepped in with his question. He, Peter piped in. I wanted to say it that way. Peter piped in. <laughs> and he went right to the issue of the Lord's departure. Lord, whither goest thou? Now, when we consider Peter's question here, and the next one as well, and then we consider some of the other questions that other disciples ask him, interrupt him, during his upper room discourse. And by the way, during this discourse, he will be interrupted a total of, wouldn't you know it, seven times. He's interrupted twice here by Peter. Then he's going to be interrupted by um, uh, Thomas and then Philip, and then he's interrupted by somebody we never heard of before, never heard him speak out, Judas, not Iscariot, Judas Labaius Thaddeus. That guy had a lot of names. He'll interrupt, and then there's going to be two other times where all the disciples together interrupt. So he's going to be interrupted seven times, but we can find out as we listen to their questions, all of them, that these men had not yet taken hold of the fact that their master was going to be taken from them. Technically, we could say that he was going to allow himself to be taken from them because he could have stopped his arrest and the crucifixion at any point in time, couldn't he? All he had to say in, you know, in the garden was, I am, and they all tumbled backwards. But he allowed them to take him and be crucified. But they had not gotten that, even though many, many times he had tried to convey this truth of his departure to his men. On numerous occasions, if I took you back through the four Gospels and showed you all the, the different times he had told them this, we'd be here for too long. We always have that problem anyway, so I don't want to do that. But I'm going to give you a few occasions. For example, early in his ministry in John chapter 6, he had said to them, What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. What's that all about? I'm going to go back to where I was before in heaven with my Father. Uh, Luke 9, 44, he said, and I like this one, Let these sayings sink down into your ears. He's really trying to get his men's attention. Let my sayings sink into your ears where you really hear it, guys. And here's what he told him. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. 
And then also remember right after his encounter with the rich young ruler in Luke 18, the Lord had said this to his men. He said, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man shall be accomplished. And then he went on to tell them what had been written about the son of man. Well, he will be delivered to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, he will be spitefully entreated, spitted on, and then they will scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he will rise again. And then there was just two days earlier, this is Thursday early morning, but two days earlier, late Tuesday night, he had said in Matthew 26, two, ye know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Now those are just some of the sayings he had said to them, but none of them, none of them had really sunk down into their ears. They had made all those sayings of the Lord, all his predictions, all his times of forewarning them. He was leaving them. He was going to be crucified. He was going to rise on the third day and ascend back to his father. All of that had made no conscious impression on them. Why? Because it just didn't fit in with everything they had ever been taught about the Messiah. What had they been taught? Had they been taught all their lives since they were little children that when the Messiah came, he would suffer and be crucified and buried and resurrected on the third day? They had never heard that, even though we know, because we have the advantage of all this, that it is in the Old Testament. Their, their religious rulers had never seen those passages, and when they did see them, they didn't like them, so they didn't teach them, or they taught that there was two messiahs, or they couldn't figure it out. They had never heard that. What did they hear? When the messiah came, what would he do? Huh? Overthrow the government, yeah, the Rome, but basically set up his king- kingdom. He was going to establish his kingdom right then and there. They didn't know anything about a suffering servant. So it didn't fit everything that they had been taught, and it just didn't, you know, all this that he's telling them didn't meld together with their plans. They wanted to be with him in the kingdom, you know. They wanted some glory out of all of this, and it it didn't fit with their plans and all their preconceived ideas. You know how hard it is? This is why it's so hard to reach people who have been taught incorrectly, especially about, um, God and, and Christ all their lives. They've sit, they've sat under false doctrine since they were little, little children. It's very difficult to change their minds, even when you have the truth, isn't it? Because we're just, you know, people just get stuck in what they've been taught. So this was difficult, and it never did sink down into their ears until when? Until after <laughs> the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So, um, So what they did is they would just mentally shut down every time he spoke like that. They willfully chose to reject such predictions. And we saw this purposeful rejection in Matthew 16 after Jesus had shared with his men on another occasion that he must go to Jerusalem where he would suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers and be killed. After Peter heard that, He was absolutely horrified. And what did he do? He rebuked the Lord and said, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. I will, you know, if nobody else does anything about it, I'm not going to allow this. You will not suffer. I will make sure of that. And what was Peter doing? He was stubbornly and selfishly putting his mind above Christ's mind. He was not set 
on submitting to God's interests and God's plans, even though he didn't understand them. He calls him Lord, but then he tries to set him straight about things. And um, he was actually being used by who? He was being used by Satan as a stumbling block to Christ's mission. And thus, Peter heard the harshest words Jesus ever spoke to a believer. Get thee behind me, Satan. And now, poor Peter is at it all over again. (laughs) He didn't want to hear about Jesus leaving because he simply could not stand the thought of being without him. And I got to thinking I could empathize with Peter in that one. I don't even want to go there in my mind. My life without Jesus in it, I doubt I would even still be here on planet Earth. I know without Jesus in my life, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But I can't even... Do you? Would you like to think of your life without Jesus? Absolutely not. And Peter was... I mean, everything about Peter's life had changed with the arrival of Jesus. His hopes, his dreams, everything. And he just couldn't bear to think of his life without Jesus in it. Now, let me ask you a question here. Think about this. Who was Peter more concerned with at this point in time in his life? Was he more concerned about Jesus or was he more concerned about himself? He was. He was more concerned about himself. He did not want to be without Jesus. What is my life going to be like without Jesus? Now, if Peter had been thinking selflessly, not about himself, but selflessly, Wouldn't he have been more concerned about Jesus? Wouldn't he have focused on, instead of focusing on verse 33, where the Lord said he was going away and they couldn't come with him, wouldn't Jesus have been more focused on the Lord's statement about his glorification back in 31 and 32, uh, where the Lord said probably excitedly, now is the Son of Man glorified and the Father is glorified in him? If Peter was thinking more of Jesus, wouldn't he have asked a question like this? Lord, how is it that you are finally going to be glorified? That is great news, Lord. This is what I have wanted. This is what we have wanted. You've been persecuted. You've been misunderstood by the religious rulers, by your own family. It's been hard on you. Nobody appreciates you for who you are. And now you're going to be glorified? That's great, Lord. How is this going to come to pass? But did he ask a question like that? No. If Peter had even been more centered on the other men than on himself, he might have been more focused on the new commandment that Jesus had just spoken of. And instead of saying, where are you going, Lord, and I can't come with you, I'll even die with you, he would have maybe asked a question like, Lord, I know I fall short of loving these men like I should. Can you teach us how we can love one another as you have loved us? Remember when they asked, Lord, teach us to pray? Couldn't they have asked a question like that? Couldn't Peter, as the leader, have said, Lord, would you teach us how we can love with your kind of love? But we don't see any of that because Peter, just like you and I, unfortunately, many times in our lives, just really on a daily basis, looked at things from his own perspective. Isn't that what we always do? You know, I I probably shouldn't even mention this, but I hear it a lot in our testimonies, and I'm guilty of this too. When we give a testimony, what do we center on? What the Lord has done for me. 
Like I just said, I can't imagine my life, my life, without Jesus. Instead, if we're spiritually mature, what our testimony should be is that the Lord has given me a new life, and now, for the first time, I can use my life to give him glory. I couldn't do that in my old man. But now in my, you know, I'm a new creature in Christ, and now for the rest of my days, I can do something to glorify him. Because that's why we're here, isn't it? To glorify him. That's how our testimony should be centered. But we so often see everything from our perspective. But fortunately for Peter, and fortunately for you and I, the Lord is patient with his little children. Aren't you patient with your little... Well, don't answer that. Not always. I think it's easier to be patient with grandchildren than with children. Mm -hmm. That's why the Lord gives us a second chance. But with them even living in my house, I'm not even quite so patient as I could be if they were living in their own house. (laughs) But the Lord is very patient with his little technia, his little children. He knew Peter's heart. And this is where it's good when the Lord knows our real heart. He knew Peter's heart, and he knew that Peter was the genuine thing. So in answer to Peter's question, Lord, where are you going? The Lord, in effect, said this. He said, where I'm going is to a place where you cannot yet follow me, but you will follow me when? Look at the last word in verse 36. Afterwards. You will follow me afterwards. Now, in that word afterwards, the Lord was promising heaven to these men. He couldn't have said this when Judas was still there, right? Now he's talking to his true followers. He says, uh, the, the Lord's words, whither I go, have a different meaning. I want to point this out to you. A different meaning in verse 36, really, than they did in verse 33, where he had first told them where he was going. You know, whither I go, you cannot come. Back in verse 33, he was speaking more specifically about the path that he had to trod alone to the cross and to the grave in order to die for the sins of the world. The disciples could not come with him on that path. Why? Because they were sinful. He alone could shed sinless blood and satisfy God's justice for the remission of sin. So he alone would be the one to conquer death and sin by his resurrection so that his followers could then later join him in heaven but but first so that's basically what he's saying in verse 33 you know you can't follow me on this path he didn't use the word now he said you can't come because i have to tread this path alone but in verse 36 he's saying you know you can follow me afterwards there he's more specifically talking about heaven but first you know before they're going to follow him he wants them to learn all the lessons he's been trying to teach them about true servanthood And humility, as when he washed their feet, you know, he's trying to teach them. He wants them to learn about devotion and selflessness and faithfulness and, of course, love, so that they can then fulfill the great commission that he was specifically giving to them to lay the foundation for his church. And then, you see, when their course was finished, when they had done their work, then they could follow him afterwards. Where? To heaven. Now, also, I think, this is complicated, but I think also implied in verse 36, 
when he says, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Who is he speaking to specifically there? All of them, but specifically to Peter. And Peter, you know, would follow the Lord in the way of his death because Peter was crucified. I was just reading one of John MacArthur's books, 12 Ordinary Men. I love the fact that he wrote a book called 12 Ordinary Men, but how many 12 Extraordinary Women? <laughs> but I was reading the chapter on uh, Peter, and it, it, they, tradition says that they took, in his older years, I don't know how old he was, but they took Peter and his wife. You know, Peter was married. We know that because Peter had a mother-in-law, and you can't have a mother-in-law without a wife. I don't think anybody wants a mother-in-law without a wife. But, um, they say they took his wife and him, and they crucified the wife first in front of Peter. Hmm. I cannot imagine Peter watching his wife being nailed to a cross. And he reportedly called out to her while they were nailing her to the cross and kept saying to her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, you know, to help strengthen her in that awful time. And then they took him, and he said, do not crucify me. I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. And they did. He was hung on a cross upside down. I cannot imagine, I can't even begin to imagine the pain. All the blood, I mean, in addition to all the other physical pain, but all the blood rushing to his head, just awful. The only good thing out of that is I imagine he would die quicker that way. But Peter was crucified, and we, we know he was, even from Scripture, because when he's restored in John 21, Jesus does tell him that he would be girded and taken, his arms outstretched, and... Um, that he was predicting he would be crucified. Well, the Lord's answer stunned Peter. Why would Jesus tell him that he could not go with him wherever it was he was going? He still doesn't understand where he's going, right? He said, why can't I go with you? Peter had always been allowed to follow Jesus everywhere he went. He was one of the three inner circle guys, right? Peter, James, and John. He was with the Lord when the Lord raised his first person from the dead. Who was that, by the way? Anybody remember? Who was the first one Jesus raised from the dead? Oh, no, 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 no. That was, Lazarus was the third. Child. Heard the word child. Jairus' daughter. Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. And then the widow's son at Nain, and then Lazarus. Okay, that's the order. But Peter was there when Jesus went into that house and raised Jairus' little daughter from death. And he was also taken with the Lord up to the Mount of Transfiguration to see his glory unveiled. He was one of only three to see that. And when Jesus came walking out to them on top of the wild waves of the tempest-tossed Sea of Galilee, what did Peter do? Wanted to be where the Lord was, so, boy, what faith. He stepped out of the boat. You know, we always criticize him for sinking, but how many of you would have stepped out on the boat, out of the boat? I sure wouldn't have volunteered. I'm not real water comfortable. <laughs> but he stepped out of the boat to be, he wanted to be where the Lord was. Um, so why all of a sudden, and, you know, when the Lord encountered all the animosity of the religious rulers, who was always there at his side? Peter. Even in the garden, we're going to see later on, Peter's right there with the Lord, you know, and chops off Malchus's ear. So why all of a sudden would it be any different? Lord, why can I not follow thee now? 
I will lay down my life for thy sake, he says. If Jesus, he was just, you know, Peter was to the point where if Jesus is going to keep on insisting on dying, okay, I'll die with him. I'll go wherever you go, and I'll die with you. Now, it was good that uh, Peter mourned even the thought of being parted from Jesus, wasn't it? I mean, we can understand that, and that was a good thing that he, he wanted to be with the Lord, but it was wrong that he did not simply submit to the Lord's wisdom about things. Don't you think he should have just learned that lesson when he said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet? You know, that's his way of thinking. And then the Lord had to correct him, and so he says, okay, give me a whole bath, you know. (laughs) But here he is making the same mistake again, not trusting the Lord's wisdom on a matter. He should have, by the way, he should have taken comfort in the fact that even if he couldn't go with the Lord at that point in time in his life, he had just been assured by the Lord that he would follow him later. He should have taken some comfort in that. So while we can commend Peter's intention to be willing to die with the Lord, and I believe with all my heart that Peter meant that, and he proved it later on in the garden. You know, they, they, when Judas came to the garden, he came not only with all the chief priests and religious rulers following him, but with a cohort of Roman soldiers. Do you know how many are in a cohort? And they're armed. It says they're armed. 600. 600 Roman soldiers, every one of them armed. And temple guard. And we don't know how many temple guard, but let's say maybe 50 or 100. There was a lot of people who came to arrest Jesus. A lot. And yet Peter whipped out his sword. He was willing. But I think in all of that, you know, he was going for Malchus's head. He just missed because he was a fisherman. He wasn't a warrior. <laughs> But I really do think Peter was thinking that the Lord was going to do something. You know, he had miraculous powers. I think he thought the Lord was going to step in and end it right then and there. But, you know, he was, he he was right now when he's saying, I'm willing to die with you, he means it. He's willing. So we can commend that. And yet we find out later on when he saw that the Lord was going to allow them to take him and he was indeed going to be crucified, Peter found out that he didn't know himself quite as well as he had thought. You see, he, re- he really is speaking as a braggart, and it's going to get worse in our lesson this morning. He's speaking as a braggart when he says, in effect, if you are willing to die, if you are going to die, Lord, so be it. I can handle that. You know, I'm tough. I, I-, I will die with you. So it was going to be a very rough night for Peter because he was going to have to learn a very hard lesson about his high self-esteem. He was going to be humbled. But what what does it say in Scripture? He that trusteth in his own heart is a, this is harsh language, fool. Remember, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. If you trust in your own heart, God says, that's Proverbs 28, 26, God says you're a fool. He says this too, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Any of us are capable of doing what Peter did. Any of us are capable of the worst sins there are. Unbelievable, but we are. Anyhow, Peter, Peter basically was a good man. 
And I can say that because he was a saved man. He was a sincere believer. But there were some major flaws in his character, in his personality, that were keeping him from being all that he could be, all that Christ wanted him to be. So he was going to be confronted and corrected by way of a major crisis in his life. How often do we have to learn things this way? How long do we have to be confronted? I mean, how many times do we have to be confronted and corrected about personality issues or other issues in our lives by crises? Isn't that how we so often learn? And sometimes we don't learn fast enough and we have to have another and another and another until we finally say, Lord, I get it. I think I get it, finally. I know I'm a dumb sheep. But Peter was going to have to learn through his denial crises. But before we get to the Lord's prediction of that coming denial crisis in Peter's life, I want you now to turn over to Luke 22 to first see what Peter, uh, Jesus had to say about Peter, uh, Satan's desire to, to uh, sift Peter. And see, so you wouldn't get the sequence if we didn't do this with a harmony, and now the next thing that we find happens is the prediction of Satan sifting, and for this we want to look at 22, Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. That is the bad news. Now here comes the good news. But... I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Okay, that's all I'm going to read right here. Notice that the Lord not only went back to Peter's former name. Remember when the Lord first met Peter? Peter had a different name. What was it? Simon. That was his given name by his parents, was Simon. And Jesus met him and said, I'm going to make your name Peter. You're going to be, from now on, you're going to be Peter. But not always. <laughs> Here's what I want to tell you. Whenever Simon Peter was acting more in his old man nature, you know, was acting, giving way to the flesh, acting like the old Peter, Jesus referred to him as Simon. That's throughout Whenever Peter, like when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know, when he was acting like his new man in Christ, Jesus called him Peter. Peter means what? Large rock. So whenever he's called Simon, uh-oh, look out. Now it's interesting because in John's, I know we're in Luke, but in John's gospel, John, you know, John and Peter were close. John was the young guy, Peter was the old guy. John always looked up to Peter, you know. They were two of the inner circle. But John refers to Peter as Simon Peter, which I think is really interesting. Simon Peter, because he is, a, you know, half the time he's acting in his old man, half the time he's acting in his new man. So John calls him 12 times Simon Peter. But what does the Lord call Simon Peter here? Simon, and uh-oh, now you know he's really in trouble because he calls him Simon twice. Simon, Simon. And whenever someone in the scripture is, has their name repeated twice by the Lord God, 
that is a very strong indication that they better listen up because the Lord is going to warn them or say something to them that is very serious and they need to pay attention. It's kind of like when he says, verily, verily. So this is important. Simon, Simon. And it is important because he's telling him, I'm giving you a warning. Satan desires to have you to sift you as wheat. Now, there are only three other people in Scripture who ever had their name repeated twice by the Lord God. And I asked the ladies yesterday, so I'll ask you, does anybody know who some of them were? Exactly. Martha, Martha, remember? Thou art cumbered about and thou art troubled and anxious about many things. He was telling her, be careful, the world can creep in and take away, you know, the one good thing like Mary has chosen, like you're doing here today, to, you know, sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. We can be cumbered about by the world, can't we? That's a constant battle we all face, especially as women. Simon, I mean, Simon, he's warning about Satan. So one is the world, one is Satan. All right, who else had their name repeated twice? On the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who was Saul? Paul, the apostle Paul. And then he says, you know, it's hard, Paul, Saul, to kick against the pricks. What was Saul fighting against? What was he kicking against? He was fighting against Christians, but he... the that when it says he was kicking against the pricks, I think he was kicking against what he knew in his heart was really true. Saul was under deep conviction. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. And I think he knew Jesus was who he claimed to be. But he just couldn't let go of that. And then when he saw Stephen die... And that glow on Stephen's face and Stephen seeing heaven opened up and talking to the Son of Man, you know, seated at the right hand of God, Saul was under conviction. But he was kicking against the pricking of his, con- his conscience, wasn't he? And then now there's one other. Way back in Genesis, had his name repeated twice, was about to take a knife and kill his only beloved son. Abraham, Abraham. Lay not, it's, and this is the angel of the Lord who was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ saying to Abraham, Lay not thy hand upon the lad. Now I know that thou fearest God and hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. Now the angel was not just an angel when he said, you haven't withheld him from me. That was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think it would be really interesting to do a study on those four who've had their name called out twice, because I think there's a lot of teaching in there. But you can go with that on your own. I don't have time to develop it, but I, I thought it was really interesting. So, <clears throat> after gaining Simon's Undivided attention by speaking his name twice, Jesus told him that Satan's desire was to have him to sift him like wheat. Now, I'm going to sidetrack for a minute here and talk about something that I think is relevant. You know, it is all too frequent, and we have it in all of our churches, that people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ, they say, yes, I know Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and I do believe in him, and uh, etc. But... But I do not believe in a literal, personal devil. Well, I want to again stress, and I know I've done this before. Have you ever heard people like that? 
They believe that there is no real Satan. Maybe, yeah, there's evil in the world, the evil force, but there's no real devil. There aren't any real demons, you know, unclean spirits. But they believe in Jesus. I want to point out, I want to stress the incongruity of making such a claim. Logic does not allow for someone to say that they believe in Jesus and yet deny a personal devil. If you truly believe in Jesus, then you truly believe he is deity, that he is indeed the Son of God. He is one of the members of the triune Godhead. He believed in a personal devil. Would you say he did? He did. He even talked to the devil. Remember when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights? He had a personal encounter with the devil on many occasions, we know that. Here he's telling Satan desires to have you. He has had many encounters with unclean spirits, and he exercised them. And he made many references to the devil in his, um, in his words from Scripture. So if the devil does not really exist then we have to conclude that Jesus was either deceived into thinking he was really talking to the devil and, you know, exercising unclean spirits when he wasn't. So he was either deceived or he was purposely deceiving others. And either way, if he was a deceiver or self-deceived, that means he is not who he claimed to be, God. Fact is, if you genuinely believe in Jesus and his words... And the written word of God, which is full of references to Satan and the the fallen angels, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, there are many, many names for Satan and many, many passages of Scripture about him. I mean, where did sin come from then if there was no devil? But if you really believe in in Christ and his words and and the Scripture, then... You, you just have to believe in a literal devil. And all you really have to do, ladies, in this day and age is walk out into the world. Go to the mall and look around. This world, and that's this United States. Go to some other countries or, or go to Mexico or go to wherever. Yeah, I mean, you can just see it everywhere. I think there's more proof almost that there's a literal devil sometimes than God. I think probably more people in like third world countries know the reality of a devil more than they know the true and living God. They, don't, they call unclean spirits what they are. They know about demons. We hide that and we call it, you know, we get psychology involved and I could go down that path. But anyway, you know where I'm going. Yes, there is a literal devil. And the disciples also believed in a literal devil. But the scary part was and is that we can't see him, can we? We can't see the, uh, the prince of the power of the air and the spirits, the spirit world. And so the disciples were not even aware of the fact that he had been present among them in the upper room, hovering right over Judas. You see, and it, it just a short while earlier, he had actually devoured one of them. You know, it's interesting that Peter is the one in one of his epistles who said to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring, what, lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Peter learned his lesson. He knew Judas and that he wanted to devour him. Um, it was now Satan's deep desire and intention to likewise destroy all of the disciples, all of the apostles, and in particular, Peter. Peter's pride, you see, made him an easy target. 
And if there's one thing Satan is an expert on, if there's one sin he is an expert on, what is it? Pride. He's, he's, he knows all about pride. Actually, we could say that all of the apostles had issues with pride, didn't they? Isn't that why they had just earlier been jockeying for positions in the kingdom? Everybody wanted to have best seats. But the thing is, Peter was the leader. He was, he was the noted leader, outspoken leader. You know, whenever the Lord asked a question, usually Peter was the first one to answer it. Whenever the Lord said something and they didn't understand it, Peter was the one to ask about it. Peter was leadership material, definitely. Peter was also the main one that put his foot in his mouth. But that comes with being a leader. <laughs> you know, you put your foot in your mouth a lot when you speak a lot. And, uh, but Peter, you know, he was leadership material. So Satan knew that if Peter fell, what likely would happen? The others would follow their leader and they too would fall. We're going to see them following him a little bit later in this lesson this morning. So the Lord was telling Peter, he was actually warning Peter that Satan was desiring to take him and shake him. Take and shake and bake <laughs> uh, to and fro like wheat when it's winnowed to separate the grain from the chaff. You know, they would take wheat with a, with a big, uh, like a big pitchfork, and on a windy day, they would toss it up into the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the wheat would fall, right? And the chaff would just... So he was going to be, he was going to be winnowed. He was going to be sifted. Uh, Satan wanted to shake him with what? With temptation having to do with pride and cause his testimony and his future effectiveness for Jesus to be ruined. You see, Satan's desire at this point was not with regard, and make sure you understand this, it was not with regard to Peter's soul. It was too late for Satan to destroy Peter's soul because Peter was already saved. Remember what Jesus said when he was washing their feet and Peter said, oh, you'll never wash my... And then he said, give me a bath from head to toe. And Jesus said, ye are clean. You're already clean, Peter. But not all. And who was he speaking of? Judas Iscariot. But they were already, the other ones, the other 11, were already clean. And what had he just promised them in John 13? He said, you can't go where I'm going now, but you will follow me afterwards. That was a promise of heaven. These guys are already saved. Satan cannot destroy Peter's soul. So what is his next intention when he loses our soul? His next intention, his desire now, was to do his best to destroy Peter's service his future service for Christ. When the devil and his cohorts, whether demonic or human, have failed at soul destruction, their next ploy is service destruction. That's where you and I need to be aware. If you, if you have been born again, of course your first deep desire should be to have, make sure your soul is saved and that when you die you'll go to heaven. But after that, we have to be on guard against him destroying our testimony and our witness and our service because he's after that. You know, he wants to crush us. He wants to sift us like wheat. And he wants to destroy our testimony so that we bear no very little fruit for his kingdom. He wants to put our light under a bushel, doesn't he? So we won't be effective in bringing more people into the kingdom. But here's where we come to the good news. The good news for Peter and the good news for you and I, when you truly belong to the Lord, he intercedes on our behalf as our great high priest. It was because of the Lord's intercession for Peter 
that Peter did not come to service destruction, ruin. Jesus told Peter, Satan's desire is to have you. How did he know that? How did Jesus know Satan wanted to have him? You know why? Satan had to seek Jesus' permission to have him. Satan wants to have you, Peter. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. John MacArthur, in that book I just told you I read, says this, quote, We might have expected Jesus to reassure Peter by saying, I'm not going to allow Satan to sift you, Peter. I should say Simon. <laughs> I'm, he wants to have you, but I'm not going to allow him to sift you. But he didn't do that. Jesus essentially let Peter know that he had given Satan permission to sift him. He would allow the devil to put Peter to the test, as God did in the case of Job. He said, in essence, I'm going to let him do it, Simon. I'm going to let him toss you to the wind until there's nothing left but the reality of your faith. End of quote. And Satan, we know, did indeed sift Peter with temptation, and Peter did fall. He did, didn't he? You know what he did? He denied the Lord three times before the next sunrise. You know, if there's one thing we won't do or shouldn't do, and I hope we won't do in our lives, is to deny the Lord. Do you know how many people have been martyred for Christ rather than deny their Lord? That's what it was all about. Deny him or we'll kill you. No, I won't deny him. I mean, that's a big no-no for the Lord's people is to deny the Lord. But Peter did it three times, three times in a row. And the last time he added cursing to it. So this was a big, big mistake in Peter's life. Peter found out how much chaff there still was in him. And yet the Lord's intercessory prayer was that Peter's faith would not fail. And the Greek word that is used for fail is important to understand. In Luke twenty-two thirty-two, the word fail, you have to understand this because otherwise you'd say, well, if, if Jesus interceded that his faith wouldn't fail, then that must mean that some people's faith can fail and therefore they can lose their salvation. But that's not what he prayed. He said he prayed that his faith wouldn't fail and the word fail is from the root word of our English word eclipse eclipse you know okay let me just give you this example well, you know what an eclipse is when when the moon comes between earth and the sun it you know exactly at a certain time and it's aligned perfectly it will block out the sun right the moon comes in front of the sun and here on earth we don't see the sun now we see light kind of emanating out from the periphery of the sun but most of the sun is blocked and it gets pretty dark. That's called an eclipse. Is the sun still there? Yes. Is Peter's faith still there? Yes. But it's been hidden, hidden, like putting it under a bushel, right? Eclipse. He's praying that his faith wouldn't be dimmed, that it wouldn't eclipse totally. Um, and his, but his light is still there. It's just hidden. I want you to understand that. You see, when Peter got scared because of his affiliation with Jesus, when he saw what was happening to Jesus, 
This is when he followed him from afar off after he'd been arrested, and he was in Caiaphas's courtyard, I believe, and uh, and he was war- Peter was warming himself at the fire there with the Lord's enemies, and and he got scared because he saw the Lord was not going to do anything, and he was indeed going to be crucified as he had said, and Peter got scared. His faith dimmed, but it did not disappear. And it would come back. The moon would move on and the light would come back out. And we know on the day of Pentecost, Peter opened his mouth and 3,000 people were saved. Peter's flesh failed, yes. His flesh failed, but his faith did not. Why? Because his faith was real. Now we might ask... Well, why then didn't Jesus intercede on behalf of Judas? Why didn't he pray for Judas that his faith wouldn't fail? Well, number one, the Lord Jesus only is the great high priest intercedes on behalf of those who belong to him. He couldn't pray, intercede for Judas, and he couldn't ask that Judas's faith wouldn't fail. Why? Because Judas didn't have any faith. He didn't even have a mustard seed. Peter, at this point, you know, when he denied the Lord, he had just a mustard seed of faith. But he had faith. Judas didn't have any faith. That's the big difference. Well, it's interesting to take note of the fact that the Lord's prayer for Peter, his intercessory prayer for Peter, was not that Peter would not deny him. He didn't say, but Peter, I have prayed that you will not deny me. He didn't pray that. You see, Jesus knew that Peter's denials, even though bad, bad, bad boy, Peter, very bad, yet they were going to be used by God to teach Peter a very much needed lesson. This is all going to be part of the humbling process of Peter. Did Peter need to be humbled? Did he need to be humbled? Yes, He needed to be humbled. So the Lord, this is again the Genesis 50-20 principle. What man did for evil, what man intended for evil, the denials of the Lord was going to be used ultimately for God's glory and Peter's best good. Because out of this, Peter, his faith wouldn't dim. His faith would be greatly increased. When he had a good, long, hard look at himself and genuinely repented, his faith was increased. And all you have to do, and I want you to do this this week, is read Peter's epistles. They're short. You can read them in 10 minutes, 15, one hour, whatever. However, fast or slower read, just read his epistles. You won't believe the difference in this man. My goodness, you read his epistles and you say, can this be Simon Simon? You know, how the Lord can transfer a life. How did Peter change? Well, through his crisis, through the resurrection, and through the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have a whole new man. From then on, he was Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. No more Simon, Simon. (laughs) Aren't you glad that when the Lord looks at his little children, his little technia like Peter, he sees the finished product? Aren't you so glad that he sees us, you know, as we're going to be one day. He knows what he can make out of us. What's that song? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Took him just a week to make the sun and moon, stars and whatever. Thank you. I'm trying to teach my grandson, but I can't, I can't ever remember the tune. It took him just a week to make all the universe, but he's still working on us. <laughs> Takes a, yeah. 
Uh, when Pe- you remember, I just said this a little earlier. When Peter first came to Christ, the Lord looked at him, and what did he see? He saw the refined product. He saw the end result, and that's why essentially he said to him, your name's Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. Petros in Greek, and Cephas in Aramaic, which means a large rock. Why am I going to call you that, Peter? Because by the time I am finished shaping and molding you, I am going to make a rock out of you. And that's what we read in his epistles. He is a rock. Peter's a rock. But part of the process of making shifting sand Simon into rock like Peter occurred in a 12-hour period of time on his last night with the pre-resurrected Christ. On that night, Peter learned about the great danger of the pride of life. So it was owing to the Lord's intercession for him that Peter did not eclipse into obscurity, bearing little fruit for God's kingdom. He would have died a saved man, but his testimony for Jesus after openly denying him would have been destroyed if the Lord had not interceded on his behalf and asked God to strengthen Peter through his denial experience. Well, in the last half of verse 32, the Lord went on to tell Peter that when he was converted, now that's another word we have to make sure we understand, because that sounds like when he's saved. He's already saved, okay? So Jesus is saying when you're converted, meaning when you are turned back again from your act of sin, from your denials, not from your state of sin, but from your act of sin. This is not speaking of his soul conversion, but of his sin conversion. In other words, Peter, when you are restored, and when does Jesus restore him? In John 21. He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He denied him three times. He's restored three times. When you're restored, he was to use his own personal experience to do what? Strengthen the brethren. When we have a crisis and we learn lessons about ourselves... And we uh, have the chaff in our lives removed, and, and we go through hard times. What are we then to do? Just keep that to ourselves? No, when we see somebody else going through the same trial or the same thing we've experienced, we are to come alongside them and help them through it. I've been there. I understand. Here's the best thing to do. Here's how to work through this and strengthen the brethren. And that's exactly what Peter did. And just again, read his two New Testament epistles. He not only did it through his God-inspired writings, but he did it through the rest of his life because Peter was a true leader in the early church. Well, let's move now to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. I cannot believe I'm doing worse than yesterday, Terry. You guys are just going to have to shoot me. I don't know what's happening to me. If you have to go, go. I'm just going to try to get all this on, all right? Matthew 26 is about the prediction of the sheep scattering. And let's look at verses 31 and 32. Then saith Jesus unto them all, or unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, here he's telling them again, guys, I'm going to rise. I will go before you into Galilee. All right. After he had individually spoken to Peter and said, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Then the Lord immediately turns to the other 10 disciples. 
you know, and speaks to them. He's not going to give them any time to wonder who would replace Peter as the leader of the group. Now, they just heard Satan wants to have him. And you know what the disciples might have, if they had time to think this through, what they might have thought? Jesus doesn't give them time because he immediately turns to them and says, you guys are going to disappoint me too. You're going to scatter. But they might have otherwise thought, hmm, you know what? This is the second time the Lord has affiliated Peter's name with Satan's name. You know, get thee behind me, Satan. And now Satan wants to have you. Maybe Peter's the betrayer he's speaking of. Don't you think their minds would have gone there? Possibly. But he doesn't give them time to develop that kind of thinking because he turns to them and he says, every one of them are going to fail him when? That very night. How? By desertion. He says, all ye shall be offended because of me. You're going to stumble over me. This very night. Because why? Because it's written. Where is it written? Zechariah 13, 7. It says in Zechariah 13, God speaking through his prophet, I will smite the shepherd. Okay, who's the shepherd? Who's the good shepherd? Jesus. Who's going to smite the shepherd? God. Now, it looked like men were smiting him, right? But who was using the men? God. God smote the shepherd. Why? To die for the sins of the world. And he says, when I smite the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That speaks not only of what happened later that night, when all the apostles, including Peter, you know, when they saw what happened, they all scattered to the four winds, and not four winds, but they all scattered away from him. But it also, on the bigger picture, happened with Israel, because Jesus was their Messiah. He was their good shepherd, their great shepherd. And when they smote him, the Jews were then scattered to the four corners of the world. So there's double prophecy here. We know this was actually fulfilled that night. It says in Matthew 26, 56, when that, you know, the Roman cohort and the temple guard all arrived in the garden, it says all the disciples forsook him and fled. You know, we must not always think of the apostles, uh, or we must remember that the apostles were not always the great men of faith and the great, wonderful, model Christians that we think of them today. They only became great men of faith um, after they learned a lot of very important lessons about themselves, didn't they? They had to learn like you and I. They had to learn the hard way about their frailties and their weaknesses. The night of the Lord's arrest, they were anything but heroic men of great faith. You know what they were more like? A flock of very timid, frightened, scared sheep who scattered in every direction. And so it was only by way of their difficult and embarrassing failures and, um, and uh, fallings that they learned this truth. Apart from Christ, we can do. Apart from Christ, we are absolutely self-centered, fearful, uh, impotent, and cowardly. Well, when the, when the disciples heard the Lord's prediction, they all denied that they would ever do such a thing, ever, as desert the Lord. They all agreed with Peter that they would even die with him if, if necessary. You, we see this over in Mark's account. I won't take you there. They didn't know their own hearts, did they? They had an unrealistic understanding of the weakness of their flesh. And um, they thought their love and devotion were greater than they really were. Well... The, 
they're going to need to learn this lesson too. This is another proverb. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Peter still needed to learn this lesson as well. Even though he had been wrong in speaking out about the foot washing episode and even though he had just heard that Satan's desire was to sift him and had also heard the Lord say that all of them would scatter and that all includes him. Even though he had heard these things, yet even after hearing Jesus say something about meeting them in Galilee after he rose again, which seems to have virtually gone unheard by all of them and definitely not understood, even after all this, what do you think Peter does? He again boasts. And I just have to read this to you before I let you go. Let's quickly look at verses 33 to 35, the prediction of Simon's shame. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended of thee, yet will I, what? Never be offended. Now what did Jesus just said in verse 31? Look at it. All of you will be offended because of me. And Peter says, No, I will never be offended. Is that called contradiction? Overconfidence? He was overconfident... And his overconfidence made him make two mistakes. He compared himself with the others. He said, oh yeah, I can understand how all these other guys might be stumbled. And the word means stumbled. How they might stumble over you going to the cross, but I will never. So he not only compares himself with others, but then he also contradicts the Lord. This guy wasn't learning his lessons very quickly. Now look what else he does. Jesus answered him and said, Verily, and this is verse 34, Verily I say unto thee, Peter, you're not getting this. I'm going to tell you something else about you. That this night before the cock crow, and over in Mark it says twice, Thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. See, again, he's contradicting the Lord. The Lord said, Peter, you're going to deny me before the next sunrise three times and he immediately contradicts him no i will not den-. he's calling him lord but he's saying you're not right lord he said and then look at this uh, all the others follow peter peter um, was the leader likewise also said all the disciples they were just followers and so they all said the same thing you know we'll die with you lord we'll never scatter we won't be offended from you we won't deny you and um It's dangerous when you say never. Have you ever learned that? Never say never. (laughs) Peter Peter was used to saying things in absolutes. He he had said, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. He had said, thou shall never wash my feet. Here he says, I will never be offended. And over in Mark's account, it's really funny because when the Lord told him he was going to deny him three times, you know what it says? Peter even the more vehemently said... I will not deny thee in any wise. Well, we know exactly what did happen, right? So, so much for Peter's nevers. (laughs) Peter was overconfident. You know, he thought that he was going to be the one exception, as in the foot washing episode, you know? Okay, you can can get away with washing all these other guys' feet, but you're not going to wash my feet. You know, everybody else might disappoint you, but I won't. Hmm? Yeah, he really had a pride issue. He thought he was better than everyone else. And you know what I thought was interesting? Just a few more comments. The Lord doesn't scold his men, does he? You know, he just merely makes these predictions. 
He says, Satan wants to have you, but I've prayed for you, and you are going to be converted. You are going to be restored. And when you are, you're going to strengthen your brothers. And all of you guys are going to scatter from me. You're all going to be offended because of me, stumble over me and the cross. But when I'm risen, I'm going to meet with you again in Galilee. Meet me there. And, you know, I could just see the love. He's not scolding them. You guys are going to disappoint me so bad. I can't believe you're going to do this to me. After all I've done for you, washing your feet, loving you all these years, and just providing for your every need, and you're going to deny me, Peter? I've just been betrayed by one of you. Peter's going to deny me. The rest of you are going to scatter from me like a bunch of little cowards. Couldn't he have said it like that? But no. He understands compassionately how discouraged they're going to be and how disappointed. He knows they're the real thing, you see. And that's the difference. He has so much love and patience. So he just states the facts. And then he encourages them with the remedy for all of their failures, which is the resurrection. I am going to rise again. What a difference we have if we just contrast what happened with Judas and what happened with Peter. You know, Judas was able to look the Lord right in the face when he took that sop. He was able to look at him with hypocrisy and say, Master, is it I? And then when the Lord said, Thou what is it? You said it. Yeah, it's true. He, he still took the sop, didn't he? And when it says, I don't know where it is, John 13, 30 or something like that, that when Jude, Judas went out, it was night. That was the end. You don't read when Judas went out, he wept bitterly. You know what you do read about Peter? When Peter was in that courtyard warming his hands, and he just got finished denying the Lord for the third time. And off in the distance, a rooster crows for the second time. Peter turns, and his eyes meet the Lord's, because the Lord is standing there. And their eyes meet, and Peter remembers everything that the Lord had said. And it says that he went out and wept bitterly. You see the difference? One was genuine. That was genuine repentance. His heart broke in two. He had true faith. Judas didn't. And he went out and betrayed the Lord. Yes, he, he had remorse later and hung himself, but he never wept bitterly. And if he did, it was all, all about him, not about how he had disappointed the Lord. That's the difference. So we have another very interesting comparison there again, don't we? All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, that you are in the business of making heroes of the faith out of broken clay vessels, that your best building material is a broken and contrite spirit, that you are expert at making shifting grains of sand into rocks, and that you're also in the business of restoration, and that you can even take our failures and our times of desertion in our times of denial and doubt, and you can use them ultimately for our own good and for your glory and for the strengthening of our faith. And Father, therefore, it's my prayer that each of us, when we do find ourselves restored from times of backsliding, that you will use what we have learned to help encourage and strengthen and love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are encountering problems in this world 
and in this walk with you that we have already experienced. May we truly, indeed, love one another as you have loved us. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.